0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. It's good to see you. Good to, to be back with you. I hope you are doing well. <laughs> I hope you are doing well. And uh, I want to thank you for your, uh, your many kindnesses um, and thank you for uh, just your expressions of love and support and encouragement and prayers. Uh, they, they mean so much uh, to us. <clears throat> and uh, I want to thank Pastor Dave. He was here in the first service. I think he's still out in the hall greeting folks. Um, but just thank him for, for stepping in. He received a panicked call uh, a couple of Fridays ago um, saying, Dave, I need you, baby. And uh, he stepped right in and did a marvelous job uh, that week and then, then last week as well. So I'm just so thankful for Pastor Dave. And uh, uh, you should be too. Um, I, I hope and pray. Yeah, amen. I hope and pray you are. Um, well, I'm trying to get back kind of in the saddle and it, uh, it kind of get the flywheel turning again, you know. It took a little uh, effort, so I ran a little bit long in the first service. Maybe I'll try to tighten up this service. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we have been uh, launching into this series, heading into the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're actually going to take our first steps into that, that great, great, greatest sermon ever given. And I'm not talking about the one I'm about to do. I'm talking about the one Jesus brought, um, that great Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it, it goes by that name. When I think about the Sermon on the Mount, I really like to think of it as like Jesus' kingdom manifesto for what human flourishing can look like. But it's shorter to say, Sermon on the Mount, so we'll stick with that one, okay? We'll, we'll just kind of go with that one. Um, but, you know, we're, again, we're kicking this off, and I've got to review uh, here today from where we came from, because I, I feel kind of disconnected from the first message I brought in this series. But I want to still start um, in chapter 5 uh, today, so if you've got your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to read the first verse and then pause for a moment. But the first verse that kind of launches, moves us into the Sermon on the Mount, is an observation. And it says this. Seeing the crowds, he being Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, what from reading that would you say prompted Jesus to go up on the mountain to begin this sermon? Based on that one verse, just... Matthew 5, 1, what would you say prompted Jesus to preach this sermon? I think it was seeing the crowds. Now, we need to back up for a moment and think about what Jesus saw when he was seeing the crowd. That would stir his heart, that would motivate him to preach this this sermon. So if you'll go back to Matthew chapter 4 for a moment and look starting in verse 23, we read these words. And we talked about this three weeks ago. But it says that Jesus, he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we said that's the gospel of Jesus. It's the the gospel that Jesus taught. And we, we talked about that at great length, and we kind of summarized a couple of things. We said that the, the gospel Jesus taught was not, here are the minimal entrance requirements to get into to heaven. We said that was not Jesus' gospel. We concluded that the gospel that Jesus proclaimed was that life in the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God itself was now available, open, to ordinary people to step in. To, to just come on in to anyone who would repent and believe it, that you could just come in. Back to, to chapter 4, it says, So Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then it says, And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread because of all these healings. His fame spread throughout uh, all of Syria. And they brought him. Now I want you to notice, because this is the crowd... That caused him, that prompted him to go up on the mountain and preach the sermon. I want you to to look at what Jesus saw. It says they brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Those oppressed by demons. Epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, which is kind of the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. They followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis. The Decapolis was actually a collection of 10 Greek cities. So th- these, are, these are not Hebrew people. These would be what would be considered pagan, if you would, uh, from the Decapolis. They came from Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of you know, Jewish worship. And from Judea, that larger region. And even from beyond the Jordan. So crowds were coming from everywhere. And that's the crowd that Jesus saw that prompted him to go up on the mountain and begin teaching. And so when we read Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowd, there's something else that I want you to be captured by. Jesus saw them. He saw what was going on in their lives. He saw their struggle. He saw their their, their pain. And this is good news for us today. And the reason it's good news for us today is because it means that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees you where you're at. Jesus sees your struggle. He sees your suffering. He sees your heartache. He sees your fear. He sees your longings. He sees your brokenness. Jesus sees. He knows. And Jesus wants to speak to you. Just like he spoke to these folks that Jesus saw that day. And he spoke into their struggle and their pain and their suffering. See, that stirs the heart of Jesus to move. To move to step towards people. And what I pray that you see today is that Jesus is stepping towards you right where you're at. Right, right, right in any struggle you may be having. He's stepping right towards you in, in these moments. Now, not only did the twelve hear his message that day, but if you get to the end of Matthew chapter seven, which is where the the sermon actually ends. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, if you were to flip over here, verse 28, you would read the words that tell us that the crowds, after Jesus finished preaching, uh, this isn't in your notes, you can write it down if you want to, Matthew 7, 28, that the crowds that day, when they heard these sayings, they were, the Bible says, they were absolutely astonished. They were flabbergasted. They, they could not believe what they were, what they were hearing. They couldn't believe what they, they saw. So the crowds were there for that whole sermon that we're going to make our, our way through. But Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, we're going to look at the first 10 verses this morning. And it says, as we started out, seeing the crowds, and we talked about what that was, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Some translations say they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of the Lord. Now, that is what I consider... And understand to be the introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, that, that little group of uh, basically eight sayings, if you would, have a name all their own. What are those eight sayings called? The Beatitudes, we, we know them as, as the Beatitudes. They, they, they have their own kind of grouping, and they're, they're extremely important. I, now, one of the things I, I hope you can be captured by is how utterly shocking to the ears of the first hearers those statements would have been. To them, it probably would have even seemed like, uh, like nonsense. It it wouldn't have made sense in in their hearing. It was the exact opposite of everything they had ever been taught, and so everything that they actually thought. So hang on with me now, because it's going to take a a minute for us to unpack this. Um, The very first word that Jesus begins each of these eight statements with is a word in, in the Greek language that is the word makarios. Say it with me. Makarios. Say it again loud. Makarios. Okay. Now, that, that Greek word um, is used in lots of uh, Hebrew writings. It's used in lots of even pagan uh, literature and, and, and writings. It was used in the, the time of Jesus. Um, it was used after uh, the life and teachings of Jesus, before, after he ascended back to the Father. It, I mean, it's, it's really all over Greek literature. It is a word that is difficult for us to translate, especially for scriptural translators. And so you'll see it showing up uh, here in ESV and other translation as blessed. Um, in other places, you'll see it showing up as, as happy. But we have a, again, it's a difficult word for, for us to grab hold of. Part of it is because, you know, when, when we translate it as blessed, there is this idea that Somehow it's about the favor of God. And the word makarios is never used that way anywhere else. It's just not used that way. Makarios is actually kind of like a salutation or a greeting. There were several um, scholars that I read that kind of had, came to the same conclusion that one of the best translations for the, this Greek word makarios is Congratulations. Congratulations. Now, that may seem strange, and it would have seemed really strange to the first hearers that day. Um, they would have been kind of shocked by, by what Jesus says. And for us, because we have baggage, we have Western civilization baggage that we bring into um, these Beatitudes, uh, it, it, it may challenge us a little bit. But this word, this word makarios, congratulations, that Jesus repeats over and over and, and, and over again, um, is, again, kind of, kind of difficult. Now, in the South, we have a saying. When we want to insult somebody that sounds really good, we say what? Bless their hearts. See, you do. Bless their hearts. You could use makarios that way. Congratulations. You know? There there are ways in the south you could do that and roll your eyes when you say it. Not really mean it because you're probably jealous of whatever. But you could say it, makarios, as congratulations on the birth of your first child. Congratulations on your new job. Congratulations. And see, this is how Jesus starts the greatest sermon that was ever given. Makarios, congratulations. But then... We need to look at what he is congratulating people for. Because they are things that you would not expect to be congratulated for. Because Jesus congratulates the poor. The poor fiscally, the poor in spirit. Jesus congratulates those who are in mourning. Jesus congratulates those who are the powerless meek. Jesus congratulates those who have no righteousness. They are hungry and thirsty for it, but they, they, they have none. Now, if you're, if you're not familiar with the writings of the New Testament, if you're not familiar with the, this particular teaching of Jesus, you may be thinking, why in the world would Jesus be congratulating people in poverty? Why in the world would Jesus be congratulating people? Who are grieving? Why in the world would Jesus be congratulating people who who are uh, oppressed, who are powerless? Why would Jesus congratulate people there? Because Jesus is setting the stage for what life in His kingdom is all about, and right out of the gate, right at the top, Jesus wants to be really, really clear. So these eight statements from Jesus uh, need to be understood and embraced. In the context with which Jesus gives them. Because far too often, and I will just go ahead and confess this as sin and apologize to you now, I have not properly embraced Jesus' teaching here with clarity, and at times missed the beauty and the glory of Jesus in, in his teaching. I, I did that for years. And one of the things that it did in my life, and I see it, it, it really doing in the lives of other Christians, is it causes us to miss the power of the rest of his sermon. So I want us to start on the right footing and, and, and properly lay, if you would, this foundation for the greatest sermon ever. So I want to start by telling you what I've come to understand, the Beatitudes are not primarily. Okay, what they're primarily not. The first that I've come to see is they are primarily not virtues. They're primarily not virtues. And I would say that this was my biggest error, if you would, of thinking about the Beatitudes. And I'm not in this alone. Um, But here's what I, I had to do and others have had to do. Some theological and mental gymnastics, if you would, to turn all eight of these statements into virtues. Now, I'm not saying there's not something virtuous in some of them. But I, I remember, you know, thinking about Jesus saying the poor in spirit and then working it and massaging it so that it says, well, those who are totally dependent on God, those who come to the realization that they know how badly they need God. And when you get to the word those who mourn, it's not really about people who are grieving. It's, it's about people who come to the place where they mourn over their, their sin or, or their, their, their heart sick over the sin of the world. And then, you know, take that word meek, you know, blessed are, are the meek, and, and think of them as those, not as those who were powerless, because our Western culture, we couldn't really handle the idea of, uh, of being powerless. So we have to think of them in terms of, you know, these are people with great self-discipline. These are people who could kill you if they wanted to, but they don't want to, because they've got such great self-control. They're, these are powerful people. And so we, we take and we do kind of twisting to get it to fit into our Western kind of mindset. But Jesus actually says none of that. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't come along later in his, his sermon on the mount and expound on these beatitudes that way. T- kind of twisting and doing gymnastics with them. To make them say something he's not saying. Jesus, quite frankly, just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, if you turn over to Luke chapter 6, Luke uh, records uh, beatitudes as well. The way that he uh, communicates them is just slightly different. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, uh, Luke records them as this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. A lot of similarities there. But in both places, the the Greek word that is used there, now there's two Greek words used in the New Testament um, for poor. One of those is the Greek word panace, and panace is um, kind of like the working poor, people who basically just live paycheck to paycheck. That's not the word that Jesus used here uh, in, in, in Matthew or in Luke. The word that Jesus used here is the word tokas. And tokas has to do with those who are on the verge of starvation. These are the desperately poor. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. They're, 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 they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Now Matthew adds in the phrase, poor in spirit... So what does it mean to be spiritually poor? I like the way Dr. Willard wrote about it. He, he used the phrase spiritual zeros. The, these are people who, who have nothing to offer to the spiritual life. They have nothing to offer in the way of material possessions. And they have nothing to offer at a spiritual level in that culture, in that day, the way people were thought of. They're they're not a picture of any virtue whatsoever. And so when Jesus here says the poor, Jesus is talking about the poor. He's talking about the fiscally poor, and he's talking about the spiritually poor. Now let me ask you a question. Is, um, Is poverty a good thing? This is not a trick question. Is poverty a good thing? No, it is not. It's not not God's original intent for people to live impoverished. It was to to have dominion, if you remember back in in Genesis. And so Jesus comes along and he says, blessed are the poor. And then he says, blessed are the poor. Are, are those who mourn. And again, Jesus doesn't say those who are mourning over their sin or those who are mourning over the condition of the world. He just says, blessed are those who are in pitiful grief, in, in horrible, heartbroken suffering, mourning, mourning some kind of loss. Are you experiencing any loss in your life these days? Is there any place that you may be experiencing loss? Maybe... Maybe you're grieving loss of a marriage or loss of the marriage that you have but had hoped would be different. Maybe like some I prayed for earlier, you're grieving the loss of a loved one or the loss of a dream that has failed. Are you experiencing loss today? Are you grieving something? Because Jesus would speak to you, congratulations, bless it. And that would be so strange to receive that in the midst of of your longing. And then we think about that word meek and, you know, we've, we've tried to turn it around so that there's some kind of strength to it. You know, we tried to turn it around so that it's about people who really have power but choose not to use it. But that's not what Jesus points out. Jesus just says, blessed are the meek, the lowly, the, the powerless. And the people that Jesus was speaking to, remember, they were all powerless. They were under the oppressive rule of Rome. Jesus Jesus saw the crowd. He knew to whom he was speaking. Now, I could go through each of these eight statements that way and demonstrate ways that we have tried to make them, in our Western culture and mindset, we've tried to make them comfortable for us to wear because we don't know what to do with Jesus saying, congratulations in your suffering. We, we don't know what to do with that. Now, I will say, if we get to the second half, you know, there, there, there are eight Beatitudes here. And the first half, you got to do theological gymnastics to make them into any kind of virtue. There are, the, the last half, I could see maybe doing some, take Peacemaker. You know, we, we could work Peacemaker to be something virtuous. But now remember, the crowd that Jesus was speaking to that day, they were not looking. For their people to be peacemakers. When they looked at their culture and saw people from their their nation, the Jewish nation, making peace, you know what they thought of? Benedict Arnold. Roman collaborator. Traitor. So in, in, in this crowd, that phrase peacemaker would not have been thought of as something to be celebrated. But Jesus was celebrating it. Friends, I I no longer believe that these are primarily virtues to be pursued. When you take it purely in the context with which Jesus speaks them. Yeah, we can work them to make them that way. But I don't believe that was Jesus' primary intent. I also, secondly, don't believe the Beatitudes are primarily a list of commands. See, one of the things that happens if you try to make these into virtues... If you turn them into virtues, then you got to figure out how to go do them. And in order to go do them, you gotta, you got to flip them into some kind of command. Something that you you can pursue. Something that, that we need to do. I remember when I was a student ministry pastor. And I know some of you are saying, you can remember that far back? Yes, I can. Um, and I remember... Uh, you know, we would take students to, to, like, youth camp and those kinds of things. Yes, we had youth camp back in that day, too. I know some of you are saying, yeah, right. We did. And uh, we went to this place called Ridgecrest Sum. And one year we were there, they always had, like, training for, like, student pastors, a track you could get on. And uh, one of the tracks that year was on prayer. And so I decided that I was a track I wanted to, to go and attend and invest in. And um, so I did. And one of the days, the guy who was leading the, 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 the prayer teaching, prayer training, he took us to uh, the Beatitudes. And he taught on them. And then he sent us out to pray them. And so I'm, 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 I'm out in uh, the mountains of, of Ridgecrest, North Carolina, sitting on kind of the side, uh, sitting on a, a rock ledge, and I'm sitting there trying to pray these. And I just had a hard time saying, Jesus, make me poor. Jesus, I want to mourn. I want to suffer through some grief, Jesus. Now, I was able to do some of that gymnastic stuff because he had taught it that way, But in my spirit, there was just something really funky, that's a theological word, funky, um, that, that just wasn't settling in my heart right. And it's because we were trying to take a teaching of Jesus and turn it into something that I don't know that Jesus was actually saying. Friends, when Jesus wants to give you a command, Jesus is really clear. Look over in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, and verse 34, Jesus says these words. He says, a new command I give you. A new command I give you, that you love one another. That was, Jesus is clear when he's going to give you a command. You won't have to guess. Further down into this greatest sermon ever, like if you jumped over and started looking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, 21, 22, something like that one of the things that you will see is Jesus will begin using this phrase, you have heard it said, that he'd say what you've heard, and then he'll say, but I say to you. That's command language. You will not have to guess if Jesus is commanding you. So I, I don't really think that the Beatitudes are these new commands that Jesus is giving. Lastly, I don't think primarily that these Beatitudes are to be uh, primarily about God's promises in this life, in the life that we're living in the here and now. Because if you really look at those statements and the way life really works, you're going to be in struggle there somehow. For instance, let me ask you this Since Jesus taught this 2,000 years ago, how often do you see the meek, the truly powerless, inheriting the earth I mean are they, are they running things are they, are they do, how often do you open the paper and read about people in Washington D.C. and think well golly there's a meek one we don't That's, those aren't the thoughts we have normally about those leading in any area How about in our world today? Do the merciful receive mercy? Are the Christians who stayed behind in Afghanistan to bring the gospel of Jesus to those who do not know his name, who were living out of mercy, are they currently receiving mercy from the Taliban? See, if you're going to try to make these God's promises fulfilled in the here and now, you're going to have problems. If you try to turn them into commands, they are going to be struggle. If you try to make them into primarily being about virtue, I think you're going to miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. But now what I want us to do, I want us to look at what, what the Beatitudes really are. What the Beatitudes are. And here's what I believe they are first and foremost. First and foremost, these eight statements, this introduction to the greatest sermon ever, is the purest, beautiful display of the gospel. It's just the display of the gospel. Now, in our day, there are some who want to, what I'll call, narrowly define the gospel as justification by grace through faith, not of works. And that's a great passage of scripture. I mean it's a wonderful passage of scripture and and it's okay and and people who kind of try to identify the gospel that way I have great respect for, I've learned learned tons from, but there's another group of people who want to look at it and say, wait a minute, that's not how Jesus defined the gospel. That's not the gospel that Jesus talked about. It's not even really the gospel that the early church described. See, Jesus defined the gospel. We looked at this uh, again three weeks ago. We read it earlier today in Matthew chapter 4. Um, if you go over to the gospel of Mark, this isn't going to come up. You may want to write it down, but Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark gives us a very clear, concise description of what Jesus' gospel was. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, So he's proclaiming the gospel of God, and this is what he says The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was, if, if you're trying to think of what, what was Jesus' one line for the gospel, it was repent, because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is now near. I want you to think about how the early church defined the gospel. If you were to open the book of Matthew to the very first page, to the title page of the book of Matthew, and, and look up at the top, the way it is entitled is the gospel according to Matthew. And that includes Matthew chapter 1, 1, all the way through the end of Matthew chapter 28. If you open the next book in the New Testament, the book of Mark, and you open it to its title page, it will say, the gospel according to Mark. And it includes all of the writings of Mark. If you do that for Luke and you do that for John, it's going to say the same thing. Because what they were writing about, the gospel to the early church, was everything about Jesus, everything about his life, everything about about his teaching. Everything about his virgin birth, about his baptism, about his, his miracle working, about his tension and condemnation of religious hypocrisy, about his nonviolent fight with the powers of the day. Yes, about his death and about his burial and about his resurrection and about his ascension back to heaven and about his promise to return and be with his people forever. All of that the early church saw as the gospel. Now, if you were here three weeks ago, you know that I'm biased, in my opinion, of which one of those kind of two thought camps I'm in. I'm kind of more that it's all about the whole of Jesus. Now, friends, if you take that last one, you still get justification by grace through faith. Not of works. You still get all of that. But then you get the much bigger picture, too. And again, this stands against, this fights against this idea that the gospel is primarily about what are the minimal entrance requirements to get me into heaven. Jesus never taught that. And that's why we need to see this in the Beatitudes, because it's, it's at the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached. It says the kingdom is coming even on the most least likely people. The people least thought to, to be have access to this. Not just rich people, not just educated people, but those who are in complete poverty. See, friends, this moment in time where Jesus begins preaching this sermon, it was prophesied about 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Again, not in your notes. Sorry I didn't do a better job this week on that. Uh, But in in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed that when Messiah would come, when the king would come, when the kingdom would come to this earth, he would say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring the good news, the gospel to the poor. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, those who are mourning, to set captives free. And now Jesus, in his introduction to the greatest sermon ever, is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 61. 700-year prophecy right here. And, and, And friends, Jesus is proclaiming that. He's proclaiming the gospel to the poor. Remember, he saw them. He sees you. He's proclaiming the gospel to you. He's proclaiming the gospel to the brokenhearted. He's proclaiming the gospel to the oppressed. He's proclaiming the gospel to people who do not have it all together. These are the people that Jesus says, congratulations. The kingdom of God is here for you. It, it, it's here for you. Step, step into it. And you know what they had done? You know what they had done to be the recipients of that? They showed up. And they trusted Jesus. That's all they did. They simply showed up and trusted Jesus. They didn't have to work their way in. They didn't have to adopt some virtues or commands. They didn't have to jump through any kinds of hoops. They just showed up and and trusted Jesus. See, friends, when you turn these Beatitudes into some kind of list of something that you got to go do. Or something you got to go pursue. Then you start falling into that trap of trying to work your way into the kingdom and you can't do it jesus takes you right where you are it's not through good works it's not through some weird way of trying to become poor or some sneaky way around you know getting into mourning so i feel like i can come into the kingdom it's not about doing any of those things that's why it's the gospel In its purest form. It's just Jesus saying, hey you. Yeah, I see you. You are one messed up mamma jamma. Come on in. You're a train wreck. Come on in. Step into my kingdom. Live under my rule and reign. Congratulations to you. This is the big idea that I want you to be captured by today. And it's this. That these beatitudes of Jesus, this introduction to the greatest sermon ever, this is his personal invitation and his personal guarantee that the kingdom of God is accessible to those who thought that it was impossible for someone like them. I want to repeat that again. The Beatitudes of Jesus or his personal invitation and his personal guarantee that the kingdom of God is accessible to those who thought that it was impossible for someone like them. You can come in. Now, friends, out of that reality comes the greatest sermon ever. That is the foundation of on which the greatest sermon ever proclaimed is built. You get Jesus saying, okay, you can come in. Now let me show you the best way to live. Let me show you what human flourishing could look like. So first and foremost, this is the gospel. Secondly, there's something else going on here that I want you to be captured by. And again, it's so easy to miss. I missed it, I think, for the longest time. But it's it's just beautiful. And here's here's why I think I missed it. I think I missed it because of my Western mindset. I think I I, I missed it because of my uh, American saturation and the American culture didn't want me to see it. Because, frankly, it's, it's a radical defining of what it actually means to be blessed. We think of blessing one way, but God says blessed life looks a whole lot different than the world's economy. And so, secondly, the Beatitudes are a counter-cultural blessing. They're a counter-cultural blessing. This list of Jesus here is so counter-cultural. It's the exact opposite of what you would have expected, even in the first century. Definitely in ours, but even in the first century. Some of you say, Joe, how do you know that? You're just kind of making that up randomly, aren't you? No, I, I'm not. In Jesus' day, about 100 years, maybe 150 years, before Jesus uh, began teaching, his teaching ministry, there was a, uh, a, a Hebrew teacher named Ben Sirah. And he wrote a book called uh, the Book of Sirach. And if, uh, if you have a Catholic background, you will probably find this in your Bible, if you have a Catholic Bible, Um, because in the Catholic Bible, it also contains what's called the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal writings, and and the book of Sirach is one of those. And in the book of Sirach, interestingly, there's a list of Beatitudes. So if you go to uh, the book of Sirach, go to the 25th chapter, and you start reading in the 7th verse, this this was a, in Jesus' day, to the hearers in Jesus' day, these were Beatitudes that already existed. I want you to listen to how different they are from Jesus' beatitudes. Here's in, in verse 7, it starts this way. It says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed. That's the word makarios, okay, when, in, translated in Greek. And a tenth my tongue proclaims. So here, here we go. A man who can rejoice in his children. So first of all, you have to be a man. Lady, I'm sorry. You're just out. Okay. In order to be blessed, you got to be a man, and you got to be a man with kids. So if you're a man with no kids, sorry, you're out too. You're not included in this, in this blessed life. Then it goes on. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. That's the blessed life. Congratulations if you get to see the, the downfall of your foes. You get to see all your enemies die. You get to see all your, you know, your, uh, your competitors in the business world squashed. You know, that guy at work, he just rubs you the wrong way. He gets fired. You get to see that. Blessed are you. Congratulations. Verse 8. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Now, I am not going to expound on that. I'm just going to read it again. Happy or blessed, Makarios is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Then it goes on and says, and the one who does not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Huh? Well, what that basically means is, you know, if you don't have two ox to plow with, it's going to be kind of messy. You're plowing. And so what this is saying is, you got the best uh, that you need to get your job done. You got the best equipment, Okay. So, that blessed are you, yay, you never have to plow with an ox and a donkey at the same time. You got two ox, okay? So that, that's what it's kind of saying there. It, it goes on, it says, "Happy or blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue, which means you got a silver tongue. You know, you, 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 you speak, you're well-spoken, you know, people like to listen to you, you know, you get likes on your posts and your tweets, you know, that, that's kind of who you are. It goes on and says, and... Blessed is the one who has not served an inferior. So it basically means, look, you're the boss. Okay? There, there, you don't have to serve, you know, some bumblehead. You don't have to serve under their leadership. You're at the top of the food chain in the corporate structure. Verse 9, it says, Happy is the one who finds a, a friend. You know, you're not lonely. You're, you're, you're that blessed life if you've got people who are looking to hang out with you, want to be with you. You, you know, you're, you're the cool one. And then it goes on, it says, uh, uh, verse 9, it goes on, it says, Happy is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. It means that, you know, people kind of hang, you walk into the room, it's kind of like E.F. Hutton. You know, they hang on your word, they're listening, because you have something to say. Now, there's a part of me that says, I like that list better. I mean that that was in Jesus day that was those were the beatitudes that people were saying. Yeah baby sign me up for that. Still not sure about that ox donkey thing but sign me up for that. And Jesus steps into it and comes at life the blessed life in a completely different way. And not only does it look radically different from 1st century Israel it looks even more radically different to our day, to what the world tells us the blessed life really looks like. And friends, if you know, if you grew up in church, sometimes we get numb to how radical Jesus' words really are here. And so we have to stop and, and look at them. Jesus is radically redefining what it means to live the blessed life. Who actually has a blessed life? It's the exact opposite of what we we think. We're flying upside down in the way that we see the world. I love our country. I do. I, I deeply love our country. And it's not a secret that in our country, we are this great kind of social experiment of living the pursuit of happiness, you know? We define that as an inalienable right, you know, to pursue life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness, okay? That our country is, is built on that. We, we declare that. And please hear me say, those aren't bad or evil things. That's not, you know, they're not. But here's the problem. Here's where the breakdown occurs in our day. Happiness has been utterly redefined in our day. Especially in the last hundred years. What what happiness truly is. And today, happiness is primarily this. I must feel good about myself always and about my circumstances. Or I can't be happy. That's kind of the, the, the working definition. And because of that, uh, it's also attached to, happiness is attached to comparison. As long as I'm doing better than the status quo. As long as I've got more than I had maybe anticipated or expected. Friends. For millennia, people lived very happy who did not have running water or electricity or indoor plumbing. But man, if we can't get the latest I-whatever, you know, or the, the the latest, the newest Ford pickup truck, or, or or you know what yours is, you can't be happy. And so that's, th- th- this these words of Jesus are so radically in opposition to our mindset here. So when Jesus says, congratulations, blessed are you who are poor, or blessed are you when you're not getting the newest thing, or blessed are you when you know, you're know you suffering, we we got to come up with some kind of gymnastics to turn them around so we feel acceptable or we feel like we can embrace the teachings of Jesus here. Because... Our world is so diametrically opposed to what Jesus is really trying to say. Jesus is coming and opening his kingdom up and says, it's a whole different value system. It's a whole different way to look in the world. It's a whole different way to redefine, properly define happiness. And that brings us to what I think of as the applications for this morning. What we kind of need to step into, and the first one is this. We have to see that the only way that Jesus lists align with the rest of his sermon is through the lens of the kingdom of God. The only way that this introduction makes sense and ties to what he's going to say next in his teaching is if we see it through the lens of the kingdom of God. We've got to see it that way. It's the only way it will make sense. Now, we've talked about this before. Dave touched on it last week. We'll address it some in the future. But we've got to hold to Jesus' teaching about, about the kingdom, that it is both a present reality and a future hope. And we've got to wrap our heads around this. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead, that it's, it's the now and the, the not yet that Jesus is speaking these blessings about, you know? And I hope you've seen this. If you you look at those eight Beatitudes, the first one and the last one are present tense. You know, if you look at verse 3 and you look at verse 10, it it says, Blessed are, and then it ends with this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, uh, you know, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The middle six are all future tense. They're all like, you know, blessed are are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. They're all things that are coming into the future. So right here in the Beatitudes, we see this tension of the kingdom of God being, you know, now and not yet. Uh, I love the way Dr. Willard talked about this. He talked about we live in the time between the times. The time between the ascension of Jesus to His throne to the day that He comes back and brings His throne here for eternity to rule and reign forever with, with His people. We live in that in-between time. The time between the times. But the kingdom is here now. The ability to live in that kingdom is here now. But we've got to see that life is different there. And we've got to begin to to. To pursue living under the rule and reign of God. Now. This is going to be a hard question. I'm warning you. What would make you think you would want to live under the rule and reign of God for all eternity... If you don't want to live under the rule and reign of God now. If you don't want to live under the rule and reign of God now. In his kingdom. Why would you even begin to imagine that. Hey I'd like to do that for all eternity. But I don't want to do it for 15 minutes here. Because that's how we live often. When we try to think about the the kingdom of God. Do you truly want to pray God bring up there down here. Is that your prayer? Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you truly want that? Then the second application would be this. By faith, by trust, we have to come to trust that we are not blessed in spite of our pain, or another way to say it is blessed without pain, but that we can live blessed in our pain. We can live hearing the voice of Jesus saying congratulations right in the middle of our pain. We can hear that voice and believe it and, and, and receive it. It's not Jesus just saying, yeah, you're blessed, so just suck it up and look on the bright side. A- that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is God has a blessing for you in your pain. He's not saying that your pain is good. He's not saying that your grief is good. He's not saying that your poverty is good. But he's saying in the midst of any of that, God has a blessing for you if you will walk in his kingdom. If you will live under his rule and reign. So that that, that grief and that loss that you may be experiencing, that death of a family member or, or, or a friend, that you can, God is going to bless you in the middle of that. You know, the people that showed up for that sermon that day, that, that crowd that Jesus saw, looked deep into their lives. Some of them showed up that day in deep grief, deep sorrow. Maybe the loss of a child or spouse. You know, when they left there that day, That grief still went with them. But now they had heard Jesus tell them that there's hope now. Because even in the middle of that pain, God will work. Everybody who showed up there that day was oppressed by Rome. Guess what happened when they left there that day? They left still oppressed by Rome. But Jesus had told them that even in the middle of that, God had a blessing for them in in the midst of, of that suffering. God had a way carved out for them. And there was hope. But they had to see and hear clearly that Jesus was saying, blessed are you right where you're at now. Facing right exactly what you're facing now. No matter how heartbreaking it is, Congratulations. The kingdom of heaven is available to you. But you got to receive it. Better yet, you got to receive him. You got to receive Jesus. You got to trust Jesus in the middle of your suffering and your pain. See, what Jesus is calling us to in the Beatitudes is to embrace him. Just embrace him, to just hold on to him with everything you got. And then to begin to trust and believe that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are in sorrow and grief and mourning because you shall be comforted you got to believe that yes you may be powerless and meek right now but you shall inherit the earth you got to believe that those places where you're you feel so disconnected from righteousness you're hungry for it you're going to be filled one day you're going to be satisfied one day that as you pour out mercy mercy's coming back to you it is, it shall, that as your heart becomes more like Jesus in purity, more and more you are going to see God. That you, you shall be called the sons of God when you set out to be a peacemaker in a world that is more excited about stirring up mess. And that as you find yourself persecuted for the sake of righteousness, right now, in the here and now, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Will you trust in that? Congratulations if you do. Congratulations. Let's pray. Lord, we come. We come desperate to hear your word to our souls. Congratulations in the midst of your darkest moments because I am with you. Congratulations, you are not alone in your suffering. Congratulations in the middle of that loss you are currently grieving, that hope, that dream that's fallen apart. Congratulations. My kingdom is available to you. Jesus, we come. We come choosing in this moment to embrace you in the midst of that. And our prayer is that as we do, as we step into the beauty of the gospel, that we don't have to work it out. Twisted up, we can just come to you and receive you and hear you say, Blessed, blessed are you, right where you're at. So we come in these moments thankful. And Lord, as I prayed, as we started our time together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable. In your side, God, we want to close our time together meditating on the truth, the beautiful truth of your word in its purity as you spoke those words, Jesus. Makarios, blessed are those. Speak to our hearts now as we worship you through your word. It's in your name, I pray, Lord Jesus.